Hi, my name is David Fincher, and I want to welcome you to Divine Deliberations. I don't know if you know much about what we're trying to do here with this podcast, but basically what we want to do is go back to the Bible to speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible's silent, to just be Christians and only Christians, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. And that's our goal. And in doing that, though, we must discuss some difficult doctrines or doctrines that seem to be divisive today in our country and among Protestant churches and Protestant believers. But I'm convinced that you and I can know truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So I'm convinced that truth is knowable. We can know what God wants us to know regarding his plan of salvation, regarding the worship of the church, regarding the security of the believer, regarding his grace, regarding the second coming of Christ, and so many other things that are important these days, especially these days, as the church is divided in so many different places. So I want to welcome you to Divine Deliberations. Thank you for being here. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel. Click the little bell so you'll be notified when we post new videos. And with that, let's get into our topic today. Today I want to speak to you about something that I believe is most important, actually probably one of the most important things, if not the most important thing, regarding what men need to do in order to be saved. Actually, I can think of nothing more important than that, and yet it seems among the Protestant world, this is a topic that divides us so often. Actually, the majority of the Protestant world believe that men are saved by faith only. That faith and faith only is what brings them to God and produces salvation. But when you really stop and think about just the very words faith only, it makes you ask some questions. Because even those who are advocates of faith only, even those individuals do not really practice faith only because they, in their teachings, say that you must say a prayer. Often it's called the sinner's prayer. Or you need to invite Jesus into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior. They say that there's something you have to do after you believe. To pray a prayer or invite Christ into your heart as your Lord and Savior or to pray through, pray until you know that God has saved you. The question is, does the Bible teach faith only? Does the Bible teach it? It's interesting that that term, faith only, only shows up one time within the pages of Scripture. And in that one time, in James, the second chapter, James says it is not by faith only. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were an advocate of faith only, that'd make me a little nervous that the only time that term shows up within the pages of Scripture is preceded by not That'd make me a little bit nervous. So today we want to talk about what does God, what does the Bible say that men must do in order to be saved? Now, in understanding that, we need to at least also understand that, and this is important, this is extremely important. No single verse of Scripture exhausts the will of God regarding any topic. 
It doesn't matter what the topic is, whether it be prayer, whether it be salvation, whether it be the possibility of apostasy or the impossibility of apostasy. No single verse exhausts the will of God regarding any given topic. Even John 3 and verse 16. John 3 and verse 16 it doesn't exhaust the will of God regarding salvation of men. John 3 and verse 16 Everyone knows the passage, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Everyone knows that passage. Well, John 3 and verse 16 says nothing about loving God. It says nothing about our obligation to love God. John 3 and verse 16 says nothing about repentance. John 3 and verse 16 says nothing about being faithful to God unto death. But yet, most people will run to John 3 and verse 16 as if it's all of God's will regarding the subject of salvation. Well, it's not. God wrote more than John 3 and verse 16. I want to start off by talking about a passage that I think often is overlooked or misconstrued or contorted uh, to mean something that it doesn't mean. And I want to look at it closely in order to understand the will of God regarding this particular topic. The passage is Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name have done many wonderful works, then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. One version says, depart from me, ye that work lawlessness. There are going to be a lot of people on the day of judgment that are going to find out that they were not saved, though they thought they were. This passage indicates that. It's important for us to understand that this passage, Jesus is saying, on the day of judgment, there are going to be people standing there. Actually, he says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, we, we prophesied in your name. And in your name, we've cast out demons. And in your name, we've done many wonderful works. First, let me point out something. These people that will make these arguments on the day of judgment believed. They believed. They had faith. They were engaged. They didn't just simply go to church on Sundays and sit on a pew for 35, 45 minutes, or maybe an hour. These people were engaged. They were prophesying in the name of Christ, or at least they thought they were. They were casting out demons in the name of Christ, or they thought they were. They were doing many wonderful works in the name of Christ. Also, it's important to note that these individuals lived in the dispensation that we call the Christian age. They lived between the time of Christ, and the beginning of the church, to the close of this age or the close of this world when Christ comes again. Also, it's important to understand that these individuals were not backsliders. They can't be. Jesus actually said to them, I never knew you. Now, the Greek word is udepote. It means never at any time, ever, never. It's emphatic. So these aren't backsliders. These aren't individuals that have backslidden and gone back into the world and become unbelievers. These individuals had never done what they needed to do to be saved. But they believed. There's no doubt that they believed. 
But Jesus says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The Greek word, ye that work iniquity, is translated lawlessness in the American Standard in the ESV. It's the word antinomia, against law. They didn't do what the Bible said do. They might have done what the preacher said do. They might have done what the church said do, but they didn't do what the Bible said do. They were against law. There are going to be a number of people that are cursed on the day of judgment because they preach and teach and advocate a different message than the apostles. You say, how do you know that? Well, Matthew 7, 21 through 23, but the first doctrinal crisis in the church is recorded in Acts, the 15th chapter, in verses 1 and verse 5. It says, certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren and said, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. And in verse 5, it says, There rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them, speaking of the Gentiles, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So there was the first doctrinal crisis within the church, and the church met about it and said, No, no, we're not going to add two things to the plan of salvation and tell them they can't be saved if they don't keep the law of Moses and are circumcised. We're not going to do that. And that was the problem over in the churches of Galatia. And Paul, when he wrote the churches of Galatia and his letter to the churches in Galatia, he went straight to the point. And he said, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ to another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we preached unto you, let him be accursed." As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which you've received, let him be accursed. Now the Judaizers were coming in behind Paul, and they were saying in addition to what Paul taught regarding the plan of salvation, you need to keep two more things. You need to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised. Maybe they had good intentions. Maybe they thought these Gentiles need some kind of law, and the New Testament isn't finished yet. It's being written, but it's not compiled. It's not finished. They don't have a law. Let's get them under Moses' law. And I sure would feel better about them if they were circumcised. At least I could sit down with them and have a meal. I don't know what their intentions were, but they were adding two things to the plan of salvation, according to Acts 15th chapter. I submit to you that if it's wrong to add two things to the plan of salvation, it's wrong to subtract from the plan of salvation. And I believe that's exactly what's happened today in the world that we live in, in the Protestant world, and in the religious world. They've, we've taken away from what the first century church practiced as the plan of salvation. And so this lesson's of great import. It's of great import because we're going to deal with what does the Bible say regarding the plan of salvation. And we need to quickly dismiss the commandments, the dogmas, the doctrines, and the denominations of men. Remember Jesus said in Matthew, the 15th chapter, in vain they do worship me teaching for commandments the doctrines of men. I don't care what any church teaches. I don't care what any preacher teaches. All I want to know is what does the scripture teach regarding this most important subject of what must I do to be saved. Now, Paul and Silas had been preaching to the Gentile cities when they came to Philippi. They were immediately labeled as troublemakers. False charges were trumped up against them. They had their clothing ripped off, and they were beaten, most likely with rods, and thrown into prison. And that brings me to the text 
of today's podcast. Acts 16, verse 22 through verse 30. says, The multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrate ran off their clothes and commanded to beat them, and when they had laid many stripes on them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. And then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So that's the topic of today's podcast. What must I do to be saved? And we don't care what the world teaches. We don't care what the Protestants teach or the Catholics teach. We don't care what anyone teaches. We want to know what the Bible teaches. What do the scriptures teach regarding the plan of salvation? Well, the first thing is obvious. Believe. The answer they gave to that Philippian jailer was to believe. Acts 16 and verse 31, they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thine house. But the question is, was the command to believe faith only? Was it exhaustive? That's all you have to do is just believe. Romans 10 and verse 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Titus 3 and verse 5 says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9 says, Who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Ephesians 2 and verse 5 says, Even when we were dead in sins, hath he quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. And 1 John 4 and verse 15 says, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Now you say, what do all those passages have in common? Well, it talks about salvation in every single one of them, but I want you to note something. Not one of those passages mentions faith. They are all without faith. And you say, well, that doesn't make faith unnecessary. It's in the passages preceding and following. You're right. But my point again is clear. No one single verse of Scripture can be taken to expose the complete and exhaustive will of God on any particular topic. Faith and belief are necessary. And even though those passages do not contain the words faith or belief, it's still necessary because other verses of Scripture teach it. I had a friend when I was in the Air Force that it took me a year to convert. And once he quoted to me Acts 16 and verse 31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thine house. And he looked at me and said, There's no baptism in that passage. I can't remember my exact words. It was 30 years ago. But I'm sure I responded with something along these lines. You've made an argument that the jailer was told to believe. He was not told to be baptized. Therefore, baptism is not necessary to salvation. Now, let me show you what you can do with that and that fallacious reasoning. The jailer was told to believe. He was not told to repent. Therefore, repentance is not necessary to salvation. The jailer was told to believe. 
He was not told to love God, therefore loving God is not necessary to salvation. The jailer was told to believe. He was not told to be faithful unto death, therefore being faithful unto death is not necessary for salvation. Now he replied to me somewhere along these lines. David, we know that you have to repent, you have to love God, and you have to be faithful unto death. My question was, how do you know? From other scripture. Exactly. No one verse of Scripture contains the exhaustive will of God on any topic, including that of salvation. I hate to inform you, John 3 and verse 16 is not exhaustive when it comes to the plan of salvation regarding what men are to do to be saved. And neither is Acts 16.31. It's not the exhaustive will of God concerning the salvation of men. Now, there are a lot of denominational preachers out there today that are coming around and understanding that there is more to the plan of salvation than faith only. I'm glad to hear that Francis Chan teaches it. David Platt's coming around. But the fact is, a lot of denominational preachers had not got there yet. They're still advocating a sinner's prayer. They're saying to pray this prayer, and it's out there. You can actually read it. But it's not in the Bible. A lot of denominational preachers out there are preaching the Roman road to salvation. It includes the sinner's prayer. It says, pray like this, Dear God, I confess that I'm a sinner, and I'm sorry. I need a Savior. I know I cannot save myself. I believe by faith that Jesus, your Son, died on the cross to be my Savior. I believe he arose from the grave to live as my Lord. I turn from my sin. I ask you, Lord Jesus, to forgive my sin and to come into my heart. I trust you as my Savior and receive you as my Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things about that prayer. First, there's not a single instance within the pages of the New Testament, and especially within the pages of Acts, where anyone was told to pray a prayer in order to be saved, and surely not this prayer. And also, I'll point out to you that in this prayer is repentance. So it's not faith only. I turn from my sin, quote, unquote. So... The sinner's prayer is just another way to say that men are saved by faith only. What's interesting is if they pray that prayer, they've got to do more than just believe. It's more than a mental assent to a proposition or a fact. They will grant that. Those who hold the position of faith only will grant that it more, it's more than a mental assent to a proposition or a fact. That you've got to pray a prayer. You've got to invite Jesus into your heart. You've got to pray through, some of them will say. Well, the fact is, if it's just faith, and it's faith only, then the devils are saved. James actually said, you believe there's one God, you do well. The devils also believe and tremble. The denominational world must understand that no one passage contains the exhaustive will of God on any topic. Psalms 119 verse 160 says, the sum of thy word is truth. One version says, the entirety of thy word is truth. If you want to know the will of God on any given topic, whether it be the plan of salvation, the worship of the church, the second coming of Jesus, you have to look at all the verses regarding that topic. The jailer was told to believe, but I want you to look at the context. In Acts 16, 31 through 33, they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thine house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and all that were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and was baptized, he, and all his, straightway. Now, I want you to notice something. They spake the word of the Lord to him. Why? Because he needed more information. 
He needed to hear. If they'd have walked away after he took them out of the jail, he wouldn't have known who Jesus was. Romans 10 and verse 17 says, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. He needed to hear about the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm convinced they preached to him and told him about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He believed as well as his house. Belief is the first step in man's journey to salvation. I want to point you toward a scripture that a lot of people that are of the persuasion of faith only overlook or skip. I don't know if it's intentional or unintentional. It's in the Gospel of John, but it's in chapter 1, verse 11 and verse 12. The Bible says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now, I don't know if you realize it, but that passage right there pretty much lays to rest faith only. Because that passage says that those people who believe in Christ, they have the right to become sons of God. What does that imply? The faith that they have that gives them the right to become does not make them a son of God. They have the right to become. They have the authority to become a child of God when they believe. That implies there's something else they have to do beyond faith. Belief gives you the right to become a child of God, but belief only does not make you a child of God. Faith and belief is obviously the engine that moves us. Hebrews the 11th chapter and verse 6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh through God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Faith is what moves us. If you believe something, it's going to change your life. If you believe your house is going to get robbed tonight, you're not going to be asleep. You're going to be sitting there with a shotgun across your lap waiting on your visitor. If you believe your house is going to catch on fire tonight, you're not going to be asleep. You're going to be sitting there with a fire extinguisher and the volunteer fire department on call. If you believe that filet mignon is going on sale tomorrow morning at Publix for 99 cents a pound, chances are you're going to be there in the morning with your shopping cart and your wallet in hand. Fact is that faith moves people. When they believe something, something happens. You look at Hebrews the 11th chapter all through it. By faith, Abel offered. By faith, Enoch walked with God. By faith, Noah prepared an ark. By faith, Abraham sojourned. By faith, Sarah received strength to bear a child. By faith, Moses forsook Egypt. By faith, Israel marched around Jericho. All of that's in Hebrews, the 11th chapter. All of those people had faith, and their faith changed the course of their lives. Same thing's true when it comes to us. Faith and belief come from the Greek word pistuo. It means faith conjoined with obedience. It always has. I want you to note something. In John, the third chapter, right after John 3 and verse 16, John said, He that believeth on the Son hath eternal life. But he that obeyeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. That's the American Standard Version. The English Standard Version says, Whosoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What am I talking about? I'm talking about John puts in the framework of belief. He says, if you believe, you have eternal life. If you don't obey, you won't see that life. What's he doing? He's equating belief with obedience and disbelief with disobedience. When speaking to the children of Israel who wandered in the desert for 40 years, before they could enter into the promised land, the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 3, in verse 18 and verse 19, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey. Watch what he says. So we see that 
they could not enter. Why? Because of unbelief. You see, disbelief, unbelief, is equated to disobedience. Disobedience is equated to unbelief. The same thing's true when it comes to faith. When someone believes, they're obedient. Someone might say, David, faith is mentioned more than anything else within the pages of Scripture. Well, you're right. It is. It's mentioned most because faith is that which begins our journey. It starts us in the direction of God. If you believe, you have the right to become a child of God. It leads you to something. And what is that something? Well, I'm convinced that the plan of salvation is taught within the pages of Scripture. It's based on not just faith and faith only, but a faith that moves, a faith that responds, a faith that's obedient, a faith that leads one to repent, to turn away from his sins, to confess Christ before men, and then to be baptized in water, immersed for the forgiveness of their sins. Now, when we get to the second point of this, not just the faith part, but also the repentance part, it makes common sense. It's just common sense. Who, who in their right mind would believe that a person can come to God and make no effort to turn away from sin? I mean, is it okay for a murderer to remain a murderer, come to Jesus, get saved, and then stay a murderer? Maybe a hitman from the mafia. Become a Christian, but continue to be a hitman? What about a thief? Come to Christ and continue to be a thief and to steal? Who would believe that? No one. No one's going to believe it. And Ephesians 4, 26 through 32 basically kicks it out the door. He says, be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed to the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Well, that passage makes it absolutely clear. There's a lifestyle that we're to leave behind. We have to repent. I'm convinced that when we become Christians, we enter into a state, into a covenant of repentance. When I was about eight or nine years old, I actually broke my sister's arm on an old abandoned swing set. And that day I learned the meaning of repentance, and I also learned the meaning of justice when my dad got a hold of me. Timothy McVeigh detonated a truck bomb in front of the Oklahoma Federal Building on April 19, 1995. He killed 168 people and injured over 800. Now, he never repented of that crime. Yet, supposedly, he believed in God and called for a Catholic priest prior to his execution. Is he okay? Is he in heaven? He never repented. If you occupy the position of faith only, you're forced to say that repentance isn't necessary for salvation. Because if it is, if repentance is necessary for salvation, then it's not faith only. Repentance is common sense. And let me tell you something. If repentance isn't necessary, the devil himself can be saved. It's not just common sense, however. It's also Bible. In Luke, the fifth chapter, 30 and 32, says the scribes and the Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, 
but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Why did Jesus come to call sinners to repentance? Repentance is necessary. Repentance is something that all of us must do if we're to come to God. In Luke, the 15th chapter, in verses 4 through 7, Jesus said, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. What's that passage saying? That heaven expects repentance. And heaven rejoices when individuals do repent. Repentance makes sense. It's common sense. Repentance is the key to lordship. In Acts, the second chapter, Peter preached the first gospel sermon in the name of a risen redeemer. And in verse 36, he said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, the theme of lordship is constant within the pages of the New Testament. Well, how do you make Christ Lord? You repent. In Luke 6, verse 46, Jesus said, Why call you me Lord, Lord? And do not the things which I say. In Acts the 17th chapter in verses 30 and 31, Paul was preaching to the Athenians on Mars Hill in regard to their polytheism. They had erected many gods. They actually had one they called the unknown God. Paul took advantage of that. But he said, the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, that he hath raised him from the dead. That passage is talking about Christ and God demanding repentance because of him. Repentance, I'm convinced, is faith turning. That has to be right. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached, a number of individuals that heard were touched. They believed the message. They believed the message that Peter had preached. They had crucified their long-awaited Messiah. And it generated, generated faith. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And in verse 36, he said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know, Assuredly God hath made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The crowd heard the sermon. They believed it. They'd killed their long-awaited Messiah. In verse 37, it says, When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They're asking the same question the Philippian jailer did. But Peter doesn't tell them to believe. Obviously, they already believe. They were pricked in their hearts. They didn't know what to do. They'd killed their Messiah. And they asked, what should they do? They, like the jailer, needed to know the answer. But because unlike the jailer, they were in a different spot. The jailer didn't even believe. He didn't even know nothing about Jesus. These Jews did. They had watched him. They had heard him. They had also saw him crucified and killed by Pontius Pilate and the leaders of the Jewish nation. And they cried out, what shall we do? In verse 38, Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what's interesting to me is that if Peter would have been of the Protestant persuasion today, he would have told them to pray a sinner's prayer. He would have told them to invite Jesus into their heart as their personal Lord and Savior. But that's not what he told them. He didn't tell them to do that. He told them to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, 
and you'd receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those individuals were to come to Christ based on Christ's conditions, not on theirs. But also in addition to belief and repentance, the Bible makes it clear we must be willing to confess Christ before men. Our faith cannot remain a secret faith. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea both tried to remain secret disciples, but the death of Christ forced them out of that closet and changed it, and they were willing to change. Jesus calls us to openly profess him. In Luke, the 12th chapter, verse 8 and verse 9, he said, I say unto you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. Why is it important that men confess Christ? Well, because Jesus came for you, a sinner. In Luke 19 and verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. He did that in the presence of God and angels. And the Bible says that he will confess you. Revelation 3 and verse 5, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white remnant. I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. We must be willing to publicly confess Christ before men. Confession is a proclamation. The Greek word for confess is homologeo. It means to agree with, to assent, to concede, not to refuse, to promise, not to deny, to confess, to declare, to profess, to declare openly, to speak out freely, to profess oneself the worshiper of one. It's like taking an oath. It's like taking a vow. When you come to Christ, you are confessing your faith in him believing that he is the son of the living God. And you, in essence, are saying that I will follow you. I will enter into a covenant with you and give you my life for the rest of my life, being faithful unto death. It's saying that I'm not ashamed. In Mark, the eighth chapter, verse 38, whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also the Son of Man shall be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let me tell you something. Our willingness to confess Christ before men has to do with our recognizing that he is Lord. In John, the 12th chapter, verse 42 and 43, those individuals there would not confess Christ. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also, many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now, how many people today would think that those guys were okay? They believed in Jesus. But they wouldn't confess him. Why? They were more concerned about what men thought than what God thought. You think God said, well, that's okay. Don't worry about that. You come on into heaven. Immediately after that passage about the Jews who believed but would not confess Christ, Jesus pronounces heavy judgment. In verses 44 through 48 of John 12, he cried and said, He that believeth on me believeth not on me, but on the one that sent me. And he that seeth me seeth him that sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. What was Jesus saying? Your lack of faith in me is also a lack of faith in God. You abide in darkness, you reject me, and my words will judge you. You're not willing to confess me before men. You're more concerned with what men think. The New Testament links confession to belief and to salvation. Romans 10, verse 9 through 11 says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. 
For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. In 1 John the fourth chapter and verse 15, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. Now that passage says, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. That passage doesn't say anything about belief. It doesn't say anything about repentance. It doesn't say anything about loving God. It just says confess him. Well, there's other verses, and this is one of them, that says there are certain things that we need to do beyond just faith. The bottom line, if you're not willing to confess Christ before men, then Christ will not confess you before his Father and the angels of heaven. But I'm convinced that confession doesn't just take place with your mouth. It also takes place with your life. You must confess Christ with your life and with your mouth, and there's no such thing as secret disciples. Finally, we have to address the topic of baptism. Is baptism part of God's plan of salvation but has been eliminated by the Protestant world for the doctrine of faith only? Well, we're going to get to that, but not this week. It's going to be next week because this lesson's gone on long enough, and I don't want to bore you to death, but we're going to talk about baptism, and we're going to talk about it in detail in our next podcast next Friday. Make sure that you click the subscribe button. Sign up. Hit the little bell so you'll get notified every time we do a podcast. So you'll actually be able to keep up with what we're talking about. If you want to make comments, you want to make uh, rebukes or rebuttals or compliments, whatever you want to do, you can do so below. I will delete profanity and things like that. I will not tolerate it. We can talk about the Word of God. We can be Christian. We can be civil. And we can understand and strive to know truth without being rude and obnoxious. But I invite your comments. I invite your critiques. I invite your uh, arguments, and we'll discuss them in each and every podcast. But I want to thank you. Thank you for being here. I, I pray what we've talked about today helps. And, uh, you know, I'm just convinced of this. We can know truth. The Bible says truth is knowable. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. But we need to be willing to set aside the dogmas, doctrines, and the denominations of men. And understanding that the commandments of men, Matthew 15, in vain you do worship me. Teaching for doctrines, the commandments of men. Let's go back to the Bible. Let's figure out what the Bible says because the Bible is the word of God. The Bible is truth. And that truth will set us free. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week.